Good morning, everyone. Let's go over a few announcements, if we will. <clears throat> For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Romans 8, verse 13. Tonight is a continuation of uh, the series by R.C. Sproul, 6 o'clock. Bring the goodies. We always enjoy the goodies. Uh, we need special music for the summer months. See Jared on that. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7 o'clock. Andrea is uh, our texting contacts for the prayer chain, and you have the number there. The New Days of Praise booklets are here for the next quarter. And if you would like to contribute to the nursery makeover, Project, designate your financial gift for a nursery on your check. Uh, we still need, I think, approximately $850. Does anybody, Laura, does anybody have a word on that? No? Okay. You'd have to see Jess on that. Uh, Wednesday of this week, we're going to have a short business meeting regarding a mission project. Uh, so if, if, if at all possible, please come out so that we have the strength and numbers to make a, a wise decision. Uh, coming October 4th is the annual Forgotten Man Ministries Banquet. There's a flyer and sign-up sheet in the foyer. Uh, please try and make an effort to attend this. This is a very worthwhile thing. Uh, Forgotten Man Ministries, I've been a part of uh, for many, many years. Uh, it's, it's a very worthwhile endeavor. It is actually, if you think about it deeply, this is a, it's, it's a mission. It's a mission that we have to the community. A lot of the men that are incarcerated in the, in the jail system generally are from the local community, and someday they get out. And what better way to go in and minister to them to change their hearts, their minds, and their souls through the grace of God by going in there and, and, and talking to these men. Uh, most of them really aren't that bad a guy. They, they, they've gotten involved in things over their head. Things have accumulated. Uh, one thing leads to another, and they're in, incarcerated. Uh, and I, as a former chaplain in the jail, have said many times, there by the grace of God go I because many of these things could have befallen me as well. So talk to your heart about this. Put it in prayer, and perhaps come and see what the uh, Forgotten Man ministry is all about. It's, a, it's, it's just a very worthy, worthy mission project. So that's, that's my two cents worth. Uh, our brother Ed Riffle and his wife Suzanne have sold their home uh, they brought a number of articles and items to the church, upstairs and downstairs. Please avail yourself to them. I believe this is going to be the last week, and we're going to have to do something with them if you folks don't take them. So uh, go through and take a look and see if there's anything you can use. Have, maybe have family that could use it or friends that could use it. Take it. Take it and use it, please. Now... <clears throat> Scripture for meditation, taken from the book of Romans, Romans 8, 
verses 5 through 17. That's 1756 in your pew Bible. Would you stand and agree with us in, in prayer for a morning? Brother Ken Lewis, would you be able to uh, begin with a prayer this morning? Thank you for this day, this special day we could get together. If we just could put the cares of the world aside for a while, concentrate on what is going to be said this day. Please remain standing. Good morning. Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to 258-258 in the brown hymnal. 258. 
morning. I had someone come to me before service and ask for him already, so um, to prepare me <laughs> for the the slightly unfamiliar hymn for me. George, I can't remember the number. Was it 187? Pardon me. What was the number again? 187. It's in the worship and service. Most of them should be at the the end, if you have them on the end of of your pew. If not, there there might be underneath. No, those those are not them. Oh, there's some up here. At the end of this pew right here, and at the in front uh, on the floor, I see some more. <coughs> Dale. One eight seven. If anyone needs one, I can see I can see it, at least one more under here. Does anybody else need one? One eight seven is the number. And do we have a, a reason for this, this hymn? Yeah, we were talking about uh, this very thing this morning in Sunday school class. And uh, this is one of those old songs that uh, reminded me of what uh, Jared was talking about once for all. That, that Christ died once for all for our sins. And uh, his blood is sufficient. And we don't have to have a Savior who dies over and over again. So somebody, uh, Philip Bliss, put it in a song, and I think it's pretty good. Great. Um, my children, do you all have enough? There's another hymnal up here, four of you sharing a hymnal under this pew right here.
Would you stand again with us as we go through our scripture reading for today? For you were called, it's uh, Galatians 13 through 26. That's what I said, right? through 25 to the end of the chapter that's what I have (laughs) for you were called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing these things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And the Lord bless the reading of his word. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 259, 259 in the brown.
Our <clears throat> scripture text this morning is Galatians 5. Last week's message dealt with the joy of sanctification. Sanctification. <laughs> it's a big word loaded with lots of meaning. Primarily, separation from the world culture and separation unto God has both thoughts. Separation from and separation unto. From, to. So, Keep that in mind when you hear the word. I think this is always a challenge because we are born in the culture. Yet Christ has called us out to be his people, to be, a, can I say it this way, a counterculture of salt and light. How else is the world going to know anything about God unless we're salt and light? You say, well, they have the Bible. Yes, they have the Bible, but they're not going to read it. How many unbelievers do you know spend time reading the book? In other parts of the world, they don't have the book. So I'll tell you what they're reading. They're reading your life, your behavior, your speech, your thoughts, your actions. You are the Bible that they are reading. There doesn't seem to be much ambiguity in our minds when it comes to obvious sins. I'm thinking of sexual sins, speech, thought. We all feel compelled to fight against these propensities of human nature. But when it comes to the not-so-obvious, involving dress and appearance, the cultivation of friends and associates, we begin to rationalize. We cave with regard to God's word by trying to put a favorable spin on our actions which we believe get around the precepts that God requires of us. God says that our bodies, get this now, our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The body has been bought with a price, we read in scripture. The precious blood of Jesus, which we were talking about in the adult class. Our body has been bought as well as our souls. And thus the charge comes to us from the Apostle Paul, glorify God in your body. In your body. Our minds also belong to God as well. So we're to harness our thoughts and we're to make them conform to God's thinking, especially when our thinking exhibits little more than a Christian whitewash of the ways of the sinful culture. You know, Jesus abhorred this hypocrisy in the Pharisees. Here's what he said. Everything they do is done for men to see. (laughs) Matthew 23, verse 5. Well, that would explain Matthew 23, verse 27, 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, 
but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28. The world expects a certain godly standard in Christians, but when they don't see much difference between you and them, the charge of hypocrisy holds some weight. It holds some weight. So today we want to look at the joy of living by the Spirit. Not just saying that we're Christians, but living out our Christianity. Living by the Spirit of God. How do we do that and how is that uh, to, to the glory and praise of our Savior? Let's ask for the Lord to enable us, to give us understanding to apply his word to our hearts, and yes, to convict us and to encourage us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray your blessing upon it as we look at the subject of the joy of living by the Spirit. Now, the world doesn't think there's much joy in that at all. They want to live by the flesh. They want to do what their natural heart wants to do, which is to delve into all kinds of sinfulness. But we are commanded to live by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. He is to affect our tongues, our speech, our actions. He is to work in terms of developing our friends with one another. Who are our friends? people of the world or is it God's people please help us to understand what sanctification is we're called out of the world culture and we're called unto Christ and in this world we will be hated but that's okay so are you hated and you said it best that the servant is not above his master. If they hated you, yes, they're going to hate us. And if we try to manipulate our life in a way that we won't be hated, I know it will only be through compromise. And when we compromise the faith, we're in spiritual peril. Bless us with the truth. Help us to be tenacious about it. Honor your word. Glorify Jesus, in whose name we pray. With thanksgiving. Amen. We're looking this morning at the subject, the joy of living by the Spirit. The first point I'm going to make is this, that new birth forbids a return to the old life. When you're born anew, born spiritually, you're pulled out of the world in the spiritual sense. And you can't, in good conscience, return to that old life. Being saved, among other things, is to be transformed out of this world and brought into the glorious kingdom 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus taught Nicodemus this way. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you, Nicodemus, must be born again. John 3, verse 6 and 7. And the absolute necessity of the new birth is explained in Romans 8, verse 7 and 8. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So it's important who's controlling your life. External reformations like the Pharisees attempted just don't cut it. Jesus said to them, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean. Matthew 23, verse 25 and 26. You see what invariably happens with external reforms is digression and recession. Say, what do you mean? Peter explains it biblically. A dog returns to its vomit And a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. 2 Peter 2 verse 22. Why is that so? Did you ever think about that? Well it is because the dog is still a scavenger by nature. And the sow is still a pig by nature. That's why they return to what they are. You know, the same holds true for men. The Pharisees were still full of greed, full of self-indulgence. By nature, when they came across as washed or clean on the outside. They looked like washed, pristine china. So, the issue is not how we make ourselves look on the outside, but if we have indeed been reborn with a new nature effected by the Holy Spirit, brought about by Him. We are in the end not able to live long in the watching world as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The respectability of Dr. Jekyll as a noted physician and scientist will soon be marred when Mr. Hyde's murderous exploits begin to surface. He was Dr. Jekyll on the outside, a reputable physician, but he was a monster on the inside. You know the story. Paul writes it this way in the scriptures. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? The gospel, of course. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Galatians 3, the first three verses. They made a switch here. They started out good. And then they went back to their old ways, right? Uh, pig going back to its mire. Paul puts his finger on the sticky point in many professing believers' lives. Having begun, that is allegedly, having begun their life in Christ by being born of the Holy Spirit, they now try to live the Christian life by reverting to the same good works mentality, indicative of their old way of thinking and their old way of doing. It's the pig back to the mire. It's the dog back to his vomit. But let me tell you, brethren, salvation is not simply a matter of beginning well. Oh, no. It's a matter of finishing well. Finishing well. Dr. Greer, a personal friend and competent biblical scholar, died after a long battle with cancer. We're all going to die. That is inevitable. But it's how we die that separates true believers from mere professors. If our faith is something we wear like a garment and it's equally tossed aside during trials, then our faith is suspect. Paul wrote to young Timothy, his protege in the ministry, and here's what he said to him. Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am ready, already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 2 Timothy 4, verses 5 through 8. This could be said of Dr. Greer, and I hope of me, I hope of you, when your time comes, when my time comes. It's important that we not only note our beginnings in the faith, but also assess how we are presently living the Christian faith. Which is a way of life, I might say. It is more a way of life than it is a religion. And you can sense Paul's 
upset with the churches of Galatia. He calls them, chapter 3, verse 1, foolish Galatians. He accuses them of being bewitched, his word. It's the Greek word, it means to be charmed by evil. Charmed by evil. In Galatians 5, he says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? What kind of persuasion? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Galatians 5, verse 7 and 8. I think it harks back to chapter 1, where Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Galatians 1, verse 6 and 7. You know, this... In one minute, you're just eating it all up, the gospel that I'm preaching to you, and the next minute, it's like I, I didn't even show up. You see, some hucksters had infiltrated the churches with a message of salvation by believing in Jesus. Oh, yes, of course, believe in Jesus. But to Jesus, you must add obedience to the law of Moses. In particular, you must be circumcised. As to externals, you see, the work of men. And so you see that salvation then became a partnership with faith in God, yes, and a product of human endeavor. And it is an admixture of the old nature still trying to justify itself. The gospel of new birth, rebirth, which is the soul work of the Spirit of God. Mix them together and you'll come up with salvation. The churches of Galatia had started out well. They had. I mean, they were running the race in the power and joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul had taught them the gospel of grace. He had made it plain that no one is saved by good works. They learned that salvation is all of grace. We cannot claim rights of ownership through the payment of good works. And then, and then, the lies of Satan began to infiltrate the church through false teachers, men who just could not let it go completely of man's abilities and professed goodness. And the hybrid, which was Jesus plus obedience to the Ten Commandments, was born, and grace, grace was destroyed. It was destroyed. Paul explains, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace it's no longer on the basis of works, otherwise, otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's Romans chapter 11, verse 5 and 6.
If someone gives you a gift, that's grace. If they tack something onto it that you must do, then suddenly grace doesn't become grace anymore. I'll give you this. Oh, and by the way, I expect this and that from you. Oh, now suddenly the gift is not a gift anymore. Now it's colored with works. It's colored with reciprocation. The gift could be $5 or it could be $500. Any contribution of doesn't make any difference, whether it's 5 or 500 A payment owed is not a gift given. When people try to obtain God's forgiveness by paying for it, that's the whole system of penance, by the way, in the Roman Catholic Church. They're going to obtain God's forgiveness by paying for it. When that happens, grace is destroyed. God's salvation becomes null and void, and people are left in their sin. They're not forgiven. They're still lost. They're still bound for hell. Because they're trying to pay their way into God's good favor. No wonder Paul is upset with the churches of Galatia for buying into this error. His letter was written to get them back on track. Here's the way he says it. After beginning with the Spirit... Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Galatians 3 verse 3. And in verse 5 of the text, of our text, we have this sobering truth. You who have been trying to be justified, that is saved, by law, by obedience to the law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Fallen away. You can't have it both ways. He's saying you can't have it both ways. You might think you can. You might think, oh, this is grace, and I can add a little bit of obedience, and we'll put them together. And we'll have salvation. And Paul says, no, you won't have salvation. You will have fallen from grace. With God, it's all or nothing. He doesn't need your help to save you. But you need his. Secondly, the new birth of grace sets us free from the rigor of work. That's the whole idea. Let me say it again. The new birth of grace sets us free from the rigor of work. Wise man Solomon wrote it this way. Listen to him, his explanation. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. Whoa, wow. And he goes on. All of it 
is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, with knowledge, with skill, and then he must leave all that he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all of his toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? And then he tells us what he gets. All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 17 and following. And so here, Solomon outlines for us some of the more salient points about work. He calls it grievous. Work is grievous. He says it's meaningless. He says it's chasing after the wind. He calls it toilsome labor. Anxious striving. Wow, these are not very wonderful descriptions of work. And in the end, the proceeds of his labor are left to someone who has not worked for it. Rather anticlimactic, don't you think? Because he doesn't reap the benefit from his labors, someone else reaps the benefit. And he says, while he is working all his days, his work is pain and grave. And he says, at night, when he should be relaxing, his mind does not rest. Wow, he must have a crystal ball looking into our lives. These are some of the darker sides of work which we would do well to consider when we try to mix works with grace. Work is tiring. Grace is invigorating. The one thing we all acknowledge about work, whether a student studying for an exam or a machinist working in a shop or a lawyer advocating on behalf of a client or a pastor preparing a sermon or a hairdresser working with a client at some point weary and tired now we all know why we work we work because we have to we work to maintain life We work to have the resources to buy food, pay the utilities, purchase housing, buy automobiles, clothes, gadgets, whatever. Solomon, too, acknowledges the need for work. His point, however, is that work in the end is meaningless because along with what money can buy, there are a lot of negatives. Like bills to pay, and pain, and grief, and chief of all, tiredness, and lack of fulfillment. You know, they tell us in the workforce, when people used to work 
um, they called it 30 and out. I think that was a term even used in the auto industry. 30 and out. What does that mean? You work 30 years for the auto industry, Ford, Chrysler, GMC, whatever, and then you retire, 30 and out. Nobody thinks that way anymore. They don't last 30 years. They work two, five, ten years. Then they get anxious and they move to someplace else. They try to move up the ladder, not laterally, but up. They're discontent where they are. Why then would people hold out for work in the form of obedience to God's moral law as the means of pleasing God and winning heaven? Especially when God himself says so plainly, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law work, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, not by works. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. That's just his way of saying, you're not going to make it if you're trusting in your works. Galatians 2, verse 16. Seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? <laughs> Two alternatives. Work your tail off and drop dead of exhaustion, still falling short of God's glory and heaven's bliss. Or, or option number two, believe that Jesus Christ has done all the work for you. Has earned the inheritance that can never pay, perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, says Peter, 1 Peter 1 verse 4 which has been bought and paid for in full, not by silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Peter 1, verse 19. And then, and then, it's handed to you as a gift on a silver platter. For it is by grace, gift, 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 for it's by grace you have been saved through faith, this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. Ephesians 2 verse 89. Aren't you tired of work folks? Boy. I am. I am truly tired of the toil. The pain. The grief. Of work. I like my work, but not, not this dark side of work. I'm tired of the routine. You know, getting up every morning to face another day busy at work. I'm tired of the transitory nature of work. The food bought for the pantry today will be gone tomorrow or inedible because it'll rot. I'm tired of the monotony of work. Same old, same old. 
But if I do not plug on, there will be no support. I'm tired of the losses of work. Inflation that robs my dollars of purchasing power. Increased taxes that take up more away from me to give to the government that will not support my right of Christian freedom. I'm tired of an aging and sometimes ill body that makes me huff and puff on projects that I used to breeze through. I'm tired of never reaching personal and family goals. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. And if you are likewise tired, why do you keep running the treadmill when it comes to the gospel of God? Paul spoke of his fellow Jewish brethren. I can testify about those. He's referring to the Jews. I can testify about them that they are (laughs) zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, their own righteousness, you see, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ, I'm still quoting, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Romans 10, verse 2 through 4. And there's an end to something else. He writes, you who are trying to be justified by law, that is your obedience to it, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Galatians 5 verse 4. How so? Well, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourself be circumcised or any other legal service, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Galatians 5, verse 2. So much for trying to mix works with grace. No, it's this. It comes up tilt. They're not compatible. And what is really depressing is that partial obedience is counted by God as disobedience. Well, I did my best. Sorry, if it's not perfect, it's to no avail. Verse 3, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised, that is, as an obedience to the Mosaic law, that he is obligated to obey, I'm reading scripture, the whole law. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did I read that right? The whole law? <laughs> That's more work than I had bargained for. <laughs> Yes, and what is more, it's an impossibility. James puts it this way, whatever keep, whoever keeps the whole law and yet, and yet, stumbles at just one point. He is guilty of breaking all of it. 
For he who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James 2 verse 10. End of story. You're doomed. You and I do not get to pick and choose our pathway to obedience because the standard of God is rooted in his own character. And what is his character? Matthew 5 verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You're not going to make that. I'm not going to make that. Nobody's going to make that. Perfect. Who can do that? I can't do that. You can't do that. Nobody can do that. Nobody but one. That was Jesus, God's son. Of whom the Bible says in bringing many sons to glory. It was fitting. That God for whom and through whom everything exists. Should make the author of their salvation perfect. Perfect. He made him perfect through suffering. Wow. Hebrews 2 verse 10. He goes on to say, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews 5 verse 8 and 9. So, How does Jesus' perfection help me, a sinner who cannot make it through one day without breaking God's law? Well, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Yes, amen. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2, verse 13 and following. Chapter 1, verse 28 says, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Get that phrase and put it down in your heart. Perfect in Christ. I could say it another way. Perfect because of Christ. Colossians 1 verse 28. Well, is that real? I mean, perfect in Christ is... is, Is that real? He did that for me? Yeah, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Romans 10 verse 4. Faith in Christ is the end of the law and all the work you're trying to do to please God and earn heaven. And if that were not glad news enough, The faith to believe like the salvation it affords is the gift of God. Meaning you don't even have to come up with the faith. God will give it to those who ask. Wow. Win, 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 win. It's like Trump saying, you'll get so tired of winning, you won't know what to do. Right? Yeah, have you heard him say that on TV? 
talking about his presidency, of course. Well, I don't know about that with regard to our government and things that go on there. But with God and Christ, he's saying that. You're going to be perfect. You're going to be winning, winning, winning. It is part and parcel of God's grace. He'll give us the faith as well as the salvation. You know, it's a cruel thing to dangle life-saving bread in front of a starving man that's chained to a post. So God says it is by the grace you have been by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves it's the gift of God not by works so that no man can boast Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 Jesus put it this way he said I am the bread of life your forefathers ate the man in the desert yet yeah, they died but Here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John 6, verse 48 and following. The new birth of grace sets us free from the rigor of war. And the failure of work. Neat thing about God, whatever He gives us, He doesn't revoke. It isn't like, here you can have it. No. Yeah, no, yeah, no. Yeah, no. It's given freely. Now, what does it mean to live by the Spirit? Verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit that's the basic principle that new nature that you have in christ was birthed by the holy spirit that body which houses your soul is now indwelled by the holy spirit it's what makes you a christian no holy spirit then you don't belong to christ paul says that we read it You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, he writes, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. Romans 8, verse 9. So here we learn that the Spirit who indwells us is none other than the Spirit of Christ himself. That Spirit which animated our Lord's physical body went on earth. This is why he told his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John 16, verse 7. And then John explains what Jesus meant by that statement. John writes, by this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. John 7, verse 39. So Jesus is saying, you know, when I go away, I'm going to send back my Spirit that animated me. I'm going to send him back. 
Do you know that every physical body needs an animating spirit to function? I could say it this way. Death in its most basic definition means that the spirit has departed. That's what death is. You know, when I was growing up, uh, the grand, my grandparents had this old phrase, and I, I heard a number of the elderly use this old phrase. They would speak of the dead, so-and-so gave up the ghost. You ever hear them say that? They, so-and-so gave up the ghost today. They're referring to the animating spirit. Take the spirit away, life ends. No spirit, holy spirit in your life. The only thing that's there is a dead corpse. Say, oh no, I'm not dead. I can think, I can breathe, I can have fun, I can go places, I can do things. Okay, how about God? What is your reference to God? If you gain the whole world, but you're dead towards God, are you really alive? Every physical body needs an animating spirit to function. Death, in its most basic definition, means the spirit has departed. It's rather humbling to learn that our new nature, born of the spirit, is embodied within us, and animated by the very spirit of the living Christ. It's this way in our text. Since we live by the spirit, that's how we live. Since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Makes sense. Secondly, to live by the spirit means that we are people of the truth. Why is that? Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Because Jesus is going to leave this earth. He's going to go back to his heavenly Father. But I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. John 14, verse 16 and 17. It's inconceivable if we are indwelled by the Spirit of God, who cannot lie, that we would be leave it an appropriate use of our tongue to engage in deception and lies and slander and innuendo and gossip and misrepresentation and the like. Now, do we do these things? Well, yes, we do as a result of remaining sin. But our goal, our intent, is to become truth speakers like the Lord. Paul's example. He says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception. Nor do we distort the word of God, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Or again, I speak the truth in Christ, says Paul, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Romans 9, verse 1. 
Christians are to be truth speakers because Christ was a truth speaker. You cannot walk in the spirit and be a pathological liar. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, lists all those that are banned from heaven. Here's the way it reads. The idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second. We're to be people of the truth. Living the truth, speaking the truth. Thirdly, to live by the Spirit means we are ever teachable disciples of Christ. Jesus put it this way. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you, John 14, verse 26. Even the original 12 disciples, minus Judas, had difficulty comprehending the teachings of Jesus. After all, we're talking about a newborn in a growing process. Jesus said, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth... He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. John 16, verse 12 through 14. And Jesus is not talking about knowing in the sense of the Bible as a book that you can pick up and read. He is talking about the Bible as a book that can be understood and it takes the Spirit of God to understand the Word of God. It presupposes that the Spirit of God is our resident teacher. Again, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man can make judgments about anything, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For he who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him. But we do have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians two fourteen through 16. Oh, and one additional pre- Supposition. The Spirit will teach, but we have to be teachable. Mm, think about that. The writer of Hebrews chided his readers. Here's what he said. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. <laughs> you need milk, not solid food. Hebrews 5, verse 12. In other words, instead of growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, 2 Peter three eighteen, they had regressed because of their own indolence. They were lazy. Knowledge of the Holy One is like any other subject. It involves study. You have to study in order to learn. And then finally, to live by the Spirit 
means we will evidence his fruit. His fruit. You're in Galatians 5. Look at verse 22 and following. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Think about that. You ever see a law anywhere that says, Thou shalt not be loving towards one another. Thou shalt not be patient. Thou shalt not be kind. No, what Paul is saying, there's there's no law against these virtues. Contrast these to the acts of the sinful nature listed in verses 19 and following. And when you read that list, you'll see lots of laws against those. Wow. Drunkenness, orgies, selfish ambition, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. Lots of laws. And that contrast between the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh creates tension. Look at verse 17 and 18. For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under law. Galatians 5, 17 and 18. So here's some important questions. Are you at peace with your sin this morning? Does it bother you to lie? Does it bother you to engage in immoral thoughts or actions? Does it bother you to steal, to gossip, to get drunk, to dabble in the occult, to have fits of rage, to be jealous, to be envious, to be greedy, to be unthankful? These are all signs of the sinful nature, not the spiritual nature. And they prove that you are still dead in your sins if, in fact, you're not in conflict with these things. And if you die in that state, you enter the second death from which there is no salvation, there is no escape. But now, today, if you sense God's Spirit convicting you, chiding you, drawing you towards God, then you need to repent of these sins. And you need to ask Christ to give you His nature and His Spirit. And guess what? He will. He will. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. See, that's not the problem. It isn't the promise, oh, God doesn't want me. Oh, he'll never want me. That's not the problem. The problem is you don't want God. My Father's will, Jesus says, is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. John 6, verse 37. 
problem's not with God, the problem's with you. It's always with us. It's that sinful nature fighting against God's goodness and righteousness that's found in Christ. God is willing and able to clean up your life, bring you into that happy state of bliss, knowing God and being part of his family. It's you that has the barriers up. It's you that's fighting. What did the Jews say in Jesus' day? We will not have this man to rule over us. Crucify him. Crucify him. And the world is still saying that. We will not have this man to rule over us. Well, guess what? He does rule over us. He will rule over us. And someday, with a scepter that is iron, he will cause all of the pagan nations who hate him to submit to him. He will rule as king of kings and lord of lords. But that won't be a nice rule. Can you think of a scepter of iron to crush people's bones, to crush their souls, to condemn? I don't want to know God that way. I want to know the peace of God forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, the love of God. And Jesus says, come unto me all you that are labored and I will give you rest. Father, thank you for your word. How precious. How precious. You sent your son to find us and to fight for us and to die for us. To pay the penalty of our sin so that we could be forgiven and cleansed. Who wouldn't want that? Either Jesus is going to pay for my sins or I'm going to pay for my sins. If Jesus pays for my sins, I get to go to glory and experience the bliss of your forgiveness and mercy. If I pay for my sins, it's going to take an eternity in hell that never, ever ceases to be. Because my puny payment doesn't have the power and sufficiency and the perfection of Christ. So it's going to take me a long time to pay off my debt. It's going to take forever and ever and ever and ever. But the beauty of Christ is this perfection. The perfect, perfect man. Infinitely holy. Gracious to a fault. I pray that we will receive him today. In Christ's name, amen. Our closing hymn is from Brown Hymnal number 249.
249 in the Brown Hymn. Let's stand together. study tonight at six o'clock. We're working through a series by Brother Sproul. Good stuff. Really good stuff. Also remind you today of the uh, items that were brought in by uh, Doc. They're on the downstairs table and in the upstairs library. Please help yourself. Anything you can use and if you have friends that can use those items and not you personally, take them anyway and give the stuff away because we're getting rid of it. 
it has to be gotten out of the building. So we'll see you tonight, Lord willing.